Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rant, Rave, and Rage. I'm your host, Riley, and on this episode, I'm going to be talking about something that is very near and dear to my heart, which is criticizing and critiquing the writing of the quote-unquote revolutionary period. So, I personally do not like to call the events that transpired between 1776 and 1800 the American Revolution. I prefer to call it the American War for Independence and nation-building era, simply because I personally don't believe that that war was particularly revolutionary. You might be saying, Riley, how can you not think it's revolutionary to overthrow a monarchical government, establish a democracy in which anyone has the right to say whatever they want and anyone can participate in government? And I would say, wow, that really would be revolutionary, except that's not what happened. And we're going to get into that when I talk about the Constitution later in this episode, but I'm going to start by talking about the Declaration of Independence. I think those two documents most clearly illustrate for me why this era was not particularly revolutionary. I think that the Founding Fathers are important historical figures, and they did change the world in a way. But do I think that they should be revered and loved uncritically? Absolutely not. I don't think any historical figure should be, because by nature, historical figures are people prone to all of the problems people have, the biases, the bigotry, all of it. And I'm going to do my best during this episode to not critique them as people, because trust me, I have a lot to say about the Founding Fathers as people, but I'm going to simply try to focus on the documents that they wrote, the documents that we still have, the documents that we still talk about to this day that are sitting in the Smithsonian behind bulletproof glass. I mean, there's a whole National Treasure movie about it. So obviously, these documents are an important part of the American mythos and how we see ourselves as a nation. But I think a lot of the time, we don't actually look at the documents themselves. We talk about what we think is in them, but we don't actually read them. It wasn't until I was a junior in high school that I read the Declaration of Independence, and trust me, it was not what I expected. (laughs) I thought it would have a bunch of language about what it means to be independent and the rights of man and citizens, which... Obviously, I should have just read the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, um, but we'll get into it right now. So, the Declaration of Independence, written, or sorry, not written, published July 4th, 1776, written by Thomas Jefferson. Most people know that part. I'm going to tell you right now that the actual substance of the Declaration of Independence is a list of grievances 
It's a list of grievances that the colonists had with the King of England. Are their grievances legitimate? Yes, they absolutely make sense. I mean, imagine you're living in a time when you can be forced into naval service or you're not allowed to have a trial or you're being taxed without representation. I mean, all of those things do still happen in the United States and are still legitimate grievances, but I digress. It's problematic. It would make you want to get rid of the government that is doing that to you. Outside of the list of grievances, what is there in the Declaration of Independence? Well, it's Thomas Jefferson talking about all these rights that people have and what it means to be a part of a society and that when a government isn't treating people right, they have a right to get, the people have a right to get rid of that government, right? And these are all wonderful ideas. They're really important. They're salient to this day. However, Thomas Jefferson was not the first person to come up with it. And Thomas Jefferson was not the first person to write these ideas down. In my opinion, at best, Thomas Jefferson was inspired vaguely by the ideas of the Enlightenment. Um, I will give credit that the Enlightenment is happening around the same time. These new ideas about what it means to be a ruler and how to be a good ruler and what good government looks like. But at worst, he's just directly plagiarizing John Locke's The Two Treatises of Civil Government, which was written in 1689, which if you're good at math, you won't need a calculator to figure it out. But if you're like me, you do need a calculator to figure that out. And then you would know that that is exactly 87 years before Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. With that backstory, with that context that I've just given you, I want to directly compare what Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence to what John Locke wrote in the Two Treatises of Civil Government. And we're going to go line by line with the first, with the kind of preamble. It's not technically the preamble, but the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. So Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm sure you already knew that. So John Locke wrote, There being nothing more evident than that creatures of the same species and rank, promiscuously born to all the same advantages of nature, and the use of the same faculties should also be equal amongst another without subordination or subjection. So that's the first part of what Thomas Jefferson wrote. All men are created equal and shouldn't be subjected to the will of another person. John Locke goes on to write, The state of nature has a law of nature to govern it which obliges everyone, and reason, which is that law, teaches all mankind who will but consult it, that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions, for men being all the workmanship of one omnipotent, infinitely wise maker. So that's the second part, that they are endowed by their creator, or omnipotent and infinitely wise maker, with certain unalienable rights, which are life, liberty, and the quote-unquote pursuit of happiness, which John Locke chooses to call possessions or property throughout his treatise. So I will give it to Jefferson. He definitely took 
John Locke's ideas and distilled them into into a structure that was much more snappy and much easier to understand. And I will credit him for that, but I think you can agree just as well as I can that those don't sound like completely original ideas. But we'll continue. Maybe that's just a one-off. It's not. So, Jefferson writes that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Locke writes, Men being, as has been said by nature, all free, equal, and independent, no one can be put out of this estate and subjected to the political power of another without his consent. The only way whereby anyone divests himself of his natural liberty and puts on the bonds of civil society is by agreeing with other men to join and unite into a community for their comfortable, safe, and peaceable living one amongst another, in a secure enjoyment of their properties and a greater security against any that are not of it. So Locke is saying the same thing that Jefferson is saying. He's saying that the only power that government has is because the people who the government is governing agree that the government is allowed to govern them. That was a lot of me saying govern. I'm sorry. But Jefferson did put it in a very succinct way. The right to govern comes from the consent of the governed. Now, last line we're going to look at. Jefferson wrote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And Locke wrote, When the government is dissolved, the people are at liberty to provide for themselves by erecting a new legislative, differing from the other, by the change of persons or form or both, as they shall find it most for their safety and good, for the society can never, by the fault of another, lose the native and original right it has to preserve itself. I will leave it up to you whether you believe that Thomas Jefferson straight up stole Locke's ideas for the Declaration of Independence, or whether he was just greatly inspired by Locke's ideas for the Declaration of Independence. But I think we can agree that in the 87 years between when Locke wrote his treatise and when Jefferson wrote his Declaration of Independence, that Locke's ideas would have made it over the Atlantic Ocean to American thinkers. I think we can all agree about that. I definitely want to look at some of the complaints that the colonists had at the time of the writing of the Declaration of Independence, because really the Declaration of Independence was kind of a letter to the world saying, we're being mistreated by the King of England, we're being mistreated in these specific ways, and that's why we want to leave. So it was kind of giving the rest of the world a heads up as to why they wanted to leave, why they wanted to leave the British Empire. So... Here are some that I think are especially salient, even today. He, whenever they refer to he, they are talking about the King of England. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. 
he has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, such as for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury. So, as you can see, a lot of valid critiques, criticisms, grievances with the King of England and British Parliament. I don't want to pretend that it's not. That being said, with those grievances, those issues that the Founding Fathers had with the king at the time, it makes sense when you read the constitution, what's included and what's not. So I want to take this time in between when I'm talking about the Declaration of Independence and the constitution to give my thoughts on what exactly the founding fathers created when they wrote the constitution. I'm not going to talk about the Articles of Confederation because it's not really relevant today. I mean, it's relevant in a historical context, but it's like not the laws we live under, unlike the Constitution. Um, but fundamentally, the United States is not a democracy. It's a republic, which is designed to take direct power away from the majority of the citizenry. Is a republic more efficient in some ways than direct democracy? Yes, it would not be very efficient if every time a new law was proposed, every single person in the United States would have to go and vote on it, yes or no. That wouldn't make sense. And so representative government does make more sense in that case. But the way that our representative government is designed is in a way that insulates those creating the laws from the direct will of the people in an immediate sense. Especially when you look at the creation of the Senate and how the Senate was initially supposed to be filled, which we're going to talk about as we go through the Constitution. So the Constitution, I'm going to go through it article by article where I feel there are pertinent things to talk about. So I'll start with Article 1, start at the beginning, or I guess we can start with the preamble. We can start with what the founders wanted the Constitution to be for. So I'll read that. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Article 1. Specifically, Article 1, Section 2. The Three-Fifths Compromise. I'm sure you all knew I was going to talk about it. I'm sure you all were just waiting for when Riley was going to talk about the Three-Fifths Compromise. I'll read it to you. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. 
So you might be thinking, Riley, the three hoops compromise is no longer a part of the Constitution. You're right. I'm looking at the Constitution as it was written and passed. So that original Constitution, we're not even going to talk about the Bill of Rights in this episode. We can talk about it later. But the three-fifths compromise. I think it's interesting that the Constitution actually never uses the word slaves. They talk about this vague idea of other persons a lot. Other persons. And I think a problem with the three-fifths compromise, besides counting people as less than a full human, is something that is still around today, which is using people for the means of counting a population, but then not allowing them their rights as a citizen to vote. So you might be saying, Riley, how does that exist today? Well, let's talk about prison populations really quick. Prison populations are used to count the population in different districts when it comes to the U.S. Census. And so let's say you're a very small town of maybe like 3,000 people, but there's also a prison that houses 10,000, 20,000 prisoners right outside your city in your county. Well, then that population, when looking at the census, will actually be 23,000, but those 20,000 prisoners don't get to vote. You might be saying, well, why should prisoners get to vote? Well, Let's think about the vested interest that a government would have in taking away the right to vote of people who it finds opposed to it. And it's not like prisoners automatically get their right to vote back after they serve their time. Oftentimes they have to individually petition the state's governor in order to get their right to vote back. But that's a whole different conversation. I just want you to think about how things that are written in the Constitution affect how our government runs today in ways you might not think about. All right, so that's Article 1, Section 2. Let's go to Section 3 of Article 1. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state chosen by the legislature thereof. Now, you might be used to voting for your senator. That was not always the case. Originally, when the Constitution was written, The people didn't get to choose their senators, they would vote for their state legislature, and then the state legislature would have, would come up with some form of voting for the senator. Which is interesting when you think about all the powers that the Senate has. The Senate has the power to approve treaties with other nations, the Senate has the power to approve judges and justices, confirm judges and justices in the U.S. federal court system. I just think it's interesting is all. We're now going to look at one more part of Article 1. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. Now you might be thinking, Riley, what are they talking about? They're talking about slaves. They're talking about the slave, the Atlantic slave trade specifically. So in the Constitution, it says that Congress cannot prohibit the importation of slaves until the year 1808, but they can put a tax of $10 per slave imported. That's 
super fun. Let's move on to Article 2. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. So this is the Electoral College. I'm going to say it. I think we should abolish the Electoral College. Personally, that's my opinion. And if you're one of those people who says, well, how do we make sure that small states still have a say in the presidential election? Well, small states are actually overrepresented in the presidential election because of the way the Electoral College works. Each vote by a person in a small state is actually worth more than one vote. And you might think, oh, it's a fluke. Usually the Electoral College and the popular vote line up. But there have been five elections where the candidate who won the popular vote lost the Electoral College. And those elections were the 1824 election, uh, where John Quincy Adams won, the 1876 election, where Rutherford B. Hayes won, the 1888 election, where Benjamin Harrison won, the 2000 election, where George W. Bush won, and the 2016 election, where Donald Trump won. And you might say, that's a fluke. Actually, no, that is a function. That is the reason that the Electoral College exists. The electors are supposed to know better for the country than the citizens are. And so the electors have the right to vote in whatever way they please. They don't have to, unless the state that they are from comes up with a law that says that they have to vote for a certain person. They're free to vote however they want. And that's a function of the Electoral College. The Electoral College exists to, quote unquote, protect the citizenry from themselves. That's the whole point. Article 4. No person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered upon a claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. So, this is no longer a part of the Constitution, but it basically says that if you're a slave and you escape to a state where there's no slavery, you're still a slave and you will be returned, quote-unquote, as property to your, quote-unquote, owner. little fun tidbit for you. Article 5. We're just going to read the whole Article 5. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to the Constitution or on the application of legislatures of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislature of three-fourths of the several states or by the conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article, and that no state shall, without its consent, be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. So, this is the 
article that explains how to propose amendments to the Constitution, but the important part is that there can be no laws addressing slavery until 1808, which, sure, I understand, I'm doing air quotes right now, sure, I understand that politically it's not viable to get rid of slavery at the beginning of the United States, but, and this is a big but, I think it's disingenuous and ahistorical to act like the abolition of slavery was a new idea that only came about in the antebellum when there were people who were staunchly anti-slavery at the inception of the United States. That is all I wanted to talk about in the Constitution. We can definitely talk about the Bill of Rights another time or just amendments in general. I don't But if you can't wait for me to talk about the amendments and you really want to learn more about them, I would definitely suggest listening to the podcast More Perfect, where they go in a deep dive on every amendment to the Constitution. My thoughts here are that when you read the Constitution, it's very clear that the United States is built on white supremacy and slavery. From its inception, that has been a part of the United States. And these ideals, as lofty and as admirable as they are, that all people are created equal and are endowed with certain inalienable rights, are not actually entrenched in the Constitution as it was written. And... A lot of the problems that we're seeing today in relation to the United States and problems with race and equity is that the United States has never been forced to truly reckon with its foundations of white supremacy. Yeah, the Civil War happened, but the Civil War was about preserving the Union, not about ending slavery. Ending slavery became a part of the Civil War. But it was not the motivation for the war. And so I think I want to leave you all with that thought, which is what does the Constitution truly say and who was the Constitution truly written for? And I don't want you to take my word for it. I definitely think you should go and read the Constitution for yourself and It's open to interpretation in some ways, but in other ways, it's very explicit in what it's saying. And I think when you have read these documents for yourself and come to your own conclusions for yourself, you kind of have a better understanding. You have a better understanding of your own individual relationship to the United States, I guess. And reading these documents is what caused me to feel that we should not call it the American Revolutionary War and should instead call it the American War for Independence. So I challenge you to go and read these documents for yourself and come to your own conclusions. Thanks for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and be sure to let me know what other topics you would like to hear me talk about in the future.